0: Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our text this morning is from Galatians 5. And I've just decided, we've just decided just to continue as the Spirit leads us in this series on holiness called Becoming Like Jesus. Um, And this passage this morning is, I've entitled The Cross and Holiness. Sort of what it means for us to pursue holiness in light of the crucified Jesus and in light of the cross. Verse 16, Galatians 5, 16, this is the word of God. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the Word of God. Father, thank you now. We pray for the illumination of your Holy Spirit. To make the word of God come alive for us this morning. And Lord, that this message would transform our hearts and conform us into Jesus' image. That we might be transformed and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen. I've been here now six years and I have really tiptoed around some of my past. I have... I have not wanted to talk a lot about a big swath of, a big, big period of my life where I was not serving the Lord. I grew up in the church, but you know, a lot of people stray in their teenage years, but um, I grew up in an area that was sort of just sucked into Los Angeles's Chicano gang scene, which had been around since the 1930s. And I lived in a neighborhood like right on the edge of one of those areas where there was a lot of gang activity. And so there was gang activity where I grew up. And by 11 or 12, friends of mine whose older brothers were from gangs, they started sort of dressing a certain way. And I didn't realize as I was copying the way they dressed, I kind of looked like a little gang member. I didn't realize it. One day I was walking home from middle school. I was in the seventh grade. In fact, I was with Maribel. She was a neighbor. We weren't boyfriend and girlfriend. Her brother was my best friend. And about 10 or 11 guys just ran up on me, asked what gang I was from. I didn't even know what they were talking about. And I got jumped, I got beat up. And that started to happen a lot. And in 1987, 88, 87, 88, um, the pressure became too much and I got jumped into one of Los Angeles's oldest Chicano gangs. Been around since the 1930s or 40s, the Zoot Suit Riot. Some of you know what that is. US sailors would be on furlough. In the late 30s or 40s, they'd go to downtown, they'd get drunk, and they would go walking into the Chicano neighborhoods of East LA and beat up Mexicans. And those Mexicans started to form groups and sort of street watch communities, or, which later became gangs. They were you know, the 38th Street guys or the 18th Street guys or the, you know, these different groups. And that grew into a entrenched gang culture by the time I was a teenager in the 1980s. And I got jumped in, which literally means five or six guys beat you up for about a minute. And it's sort of like a hazing right on steroids. You know, six guys, as your initiation into the gang, they jump you. And they're not just sort of like pushing you around. I mean, they're, they're giving you all they got. And I stood up from that after about a minute and my lip was split and my eye was swollen and my temple was—you know had the swelling like half of a softball. And after that, they shake hands and, you know, they hug you and you're one of us now. That's kind of the initiation. And um, I spent my teenage years, you know, learning to be tough and never showing fear. But I was always afraid. And, you know, gangs kill their enemies, not because they're bloodthirsty, but because they fear their enemies, because they're afraid of them. It's sort of kill or be killed. My first week in, sort of a week after I got jumped in, I think it was the summer, I went to the funeral of a 17 year old, Victor Mendez. And he was the guy who had bullied me in elementary and junior high school. He was a few years older than me. And I remember once in the seventh grade, he slapped me across the face in front of a bunch of people because I liked the girl that he liked and I was terrified of him, but I was humiliated and embarrassed, and that was sort of the beginning of my hatred for him. Little did I know years later, when I got jumped into and initiated into one of those gangs, the gang I got into, I found that um, I was at the funeral of a guy I hated, this guy Victor Mendez, because the gang I got into, little did I know, were friends with his gang. At least they were like allies. And there were hundreds of people at this guy's funeral, he was 17 years old. He had got shot by a rival gang walking across the street and died right there in the intersection on a hot summer day. And a week later, I was at his funeral. And the guys from my gang that I was just getting to know, they all loved and respected this guy. And so there's hundreds of people crying and weeping over him, multiple you know, girlfriends or ex-girlfriends crying. And it was a surreal experience because I was the only person in the building who hated him. I hated the guy, and I was sort of robbed of my chance for revenge, you know, and it was, just a, it was just a surreal feeling. I hated him because he had bullied me. You know, the things we fear, we ultimately grow to hate. Some people think God is a bully, and because of that, they hate him, you know, Our world has this misconception about God, and they think that God is out to get him, or the popular image of God is someone who wants to destroy them for every little misstep. And so they hate God, but that's because they don't understand the gospel. See, in normal religion, the motivation for morality is fear-based, But in gospel Christianity, the motivation is love that flows from the cross. So normal religion says, I've really messed things up. My dad is going to kill me. But the gospel says, I've really messed things up. I better call my dad. And that becomes a huge motivating factor for holiness, this this understanding of what the gospel really is, this understanding of who God really is, this understanding that, that we don't have to fear God if we have embraced and understand the gospel. When you know that one slip up doesn't mean the end of you. I mean, you can understand how someone would not want to serve the Lord if that was the case, if one slip up meant it's over for you, right? I mean, no relationship can endure that. You think of, I was recently thinking this week about how, you know, the children of CEOs who get hired on in companies, they thrive often often, because they're not afraid to get fired. You know, there's freedom to fail there. So they can be innovative and creative and have, you know, 45 ideas fall flat, but the 46th one hits gold because they've had this freedom to fail because they know that, well, dad's running the corporation and he's not going to get rid of me. But other people who are petrified of losing their job, they're less innovative, they're less creative, they're less sort of inventive because they're afraid. And when you think about that dynamic with God, you can think about how paralyzing that is, right? I mean, think about it. That one slip-up means it's over for you. Why would anybody, how could anybody be able to serve God like that, right? That constant fear breeds a sort of torment, a sort of hatred, but it's a wrong conception of God. It's not the conception of the God of the Bible. It's a sort of secular, worldly, fallen idea of what religion is that has crept in even to churches and Christians, and we've sort of unwittingly imported that into the gospel, but that's not the gospel. That's not what the gospel is. There's a freedom in Christ we have, a freedom, a sort of moral freedom And the gospel liberates us to truly serve God. We're liberated by the gospel, the knowledge that God has forgiven us in his son Jesus, and lightning bolts are not going to fall out of the sky at every misstep. And so we're liberated. We can rest securely in the knowledge of God's love for us, just like your children rest securely in your love. And homes that that don't have that overwhelming sense of love, the children grow to hate their parents. It's dysfunctional. They experience more condemnation than love. You know? More authoritarianism than forgiveness and grace. But the gospel tells us, the gospel declares, the gospel yells to us that we're free from condemnation in Jesus Christ. And this is a huge theme. I'm tying it back to our text now. This is a huge theme in Paul's writings. Even when talking about the law, it's this meaning of moral freedom, right? We know that our God loves us in Christ, He's forgiven us, He's not going to destroy us at the first misstep. We have this freedom, but what do we do with this freedom? What do we do with this moral freedom we have? In Christ, we're free from the guilt and power of sin. But that freedom is given for a purpose. There's a reason. God just doesn't say, you're forgiven in Christ. Hey, go do whatever you want to do. Right? There's a a purpose that we've been liberated from the condemning power and guilt of our sins. There's a reason. It's not self-indulgence, but self-control. Not serving ourselves, but serving each other in love. And so the challenge of the Christian life is choosing which parts of our desires to gratify, right? We're led by desires. We We have desires and longings. And so we all experience, each one of us, everyone here today, and Christians globally throughout all of history, an inner conflict, inner conflict, the conflict of the two natures working in us the spirit and the flesh, conflict of the two natures, the spirit and the flesh. And at any point in our life, we will live by one and not gratify the other. At any point in our lives, we're either living by one and not gratifying the other. And this is what Paul says, but I say, walk by the spirit And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Who knows that struggle? Yes. Amen. And whoever didn't raise your hand, I want to talk to you after service. I want to know how you've escaped that struggle <clears throat> we all know the struggle we have experienced that struggle it is sort of the, the 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 ground of our existence as believers but if we're Christians if we're believers if we love Jesus we might ask why why do the flesh and the spirit oppose each other Why the struggle? Why isn't there this sort of harmony within? Why is there so much conflict? Well, just to define a little bit of of these terms, it's important for us to know that the flesh doesn't refer to our physical nature as opposed to our spiritual nature. As if physical matter is bad, but spiritual matter is good, that's sort of a platonic idea that sort of crept into Christian thinking centuries ago and has lingered with us to this day, that material matter is bad, spiritual matter is good. You know, Plato said, you know, the body is the prison of the soul, so death sort of liberates us. You know, but that's that's really not how the Bible talks. The flesh refers to, at least in Paul, the fallen nature we're born with, okay? The Greek word for flesh is sarx. And it refers to the sin-desiring aspect of the whole being. That's what Paul means when he says the flesh. It's the fallen nature that is still with us, right? It's, it's, it's being lessened and lessened by the work of the Spirit, but it's still there. You know it's still there. I know it's still there. And it's the part of us that longs and desires sin. The sarks is our sinful heart. It's the aspect of our hearts not yet renewed by the Spirit. That's what the flesh is. Now, the Spirit is it's the Holy Spirit, and it's the Spirit that indwells us when we're born again. It's the part of our heart that is renewed and now belongs and to and is controlled by God's Holy Spirit. Okay? And it creates this conflict inside of us, these two things warring. And it's why Paul said, and this is really a parallel passage in Romans, it's why Paul said, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Can anyone relate to that? When I want to do good, there's, there's evil present. Still in my heart, Paul says. We've all seen these, you know, in popular culture, the image of like the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other. You know, it's, it's, we all, most of us all know it. You know, it's, <clears throat> that, that may be an expression of the conscience, but you get the idea, especially for us. That, I mean, that is not necessarily theologically accurate, but, but we do wrestle with these two natures, the renewed nature and the part of us that is not renewed, right? It is being renewed in the image of God after its maker, but there's still a part of us that has not been fully brought under the power of the Spirit, and we struggle. The inner conflict is there, good and evil, tearing, us, tearing at us all the time. And the flesh, the sinful nature, wants to be gratified. You know what it is to to gratify something, right? To feel gratified, you know? When you're hungry and you eat, you've gratified those hunger pains, and it feels good. And if you have a really good meal, you say, boy, that hit the spot. And really good restaurants know how to give you just enough food so that, like, when you finish, you're not like, uh you feel like, boy, I want to come back for more. That was that was incredible. But if it's not enough, it doesn't gratify. You know, a little French restaurant, you know, they've got a carrot, and a, you know, half an ounce of you know meat with a fancy sauce drizzle on top of it. <clears throat> to be gratified, this the sinful nature wants to be gratified. It wants to feel full of its desires. Yeah, that's what I want, and it's always. Sort of whispering in your ear. And when you give into it, do you, you know what happens? It doesn't say, All right, I'm good. It screams louder and louder. When you gratify the flesh, the, the noise from the flesh just gets ratcheted up. And it says, I want more of that. I want more of that. Give me more. We have to be honest about the fact that there are deep desires that drive and control us. Right? We, none of us commit a sin and we go, where did that come from? Right? There are lusts and desires in us that manifest in, you know, when we do things. That, that, that's, how it, that's how it manifests itself. And sin creates in us the feeling that we must have this or we must have that. David Powelson, a theologian, has a really helpful insight. And this is what he says, if idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for that same drift. The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life ruling desires for lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. I've been around quite a few junkies in my day, people who before their addiction, they held a job, they had nice marriages, they were good neighbors, they had a social life, they were respectable, but once they got hooked, the desire for for that drug or whatever it was took over and it caused them to do all sorts of crazy and irrational things, dangerous things, shameful things to get high. Their desire became uncontrollable, destroying family relationships and careers and friendships and sometimes landing them in jail. I've seen it. It is a soul-shuddering and chilling thing to watch someone who was respectable and upright, sort of, you know, all-around good citizen, be completely eviscerated, their life completely destroyed by some addiction because of the desire and there are some things out there maybe it's not a drug addiction but there are things out there for each one of us that if you are exposed to and give into just once it can take over and rearrange your desires that's how the sinful nature works it demands more it's never really satisfied But on the flip side, and hallelujah, praise God for this, on the flip side, the Spirit has yearnings. The Spirit of God in us, it also has desires. It also has longings. It also has yearnings. And they are at least as strong. Right? This is why Paul says the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Right? It's not just the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. But the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. There's a warring faction going on. This is what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. There's this inner conflict that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So there's this fight, this battle. The spirit has desires. And what does the spirit desire and long for? I want you just to think about that for a moment. What what do you think the spirit desires and longs for? The Spirit longs to show us Christ, to make us like Christ. It yearns to make us like Jesus, our Savior, God's Son, because we are sons and daughters. And this is ultimately what the Christian wants. Each one of you deeply desires to be like Christ and please God. Every every real Christian, that's what we want. We want to be like Christ. We want to please God. We want that. We don't always do it, but we want it. And it's why we are grieved by sin, because when we don't do that, when something interrupts that, we feel the weight, the disappointment in ourselves, because that's not what we really want. Living the way of the Spirit is what we most deeply want. If you've ever given into temptation and said, "This isn't me. This isn't what I really want." Then you know what I mean. I don't know about you, but I can remember feeling my my whole life every time I committed a grievous sin, I thought, "This isn't who I am." Bitterly assessing the way the ways I had fallen short or willfully given into a sin and then feeling the The conviction of that and thought to myself this isn't who I am and it was the spirit saying this isn't who you are that's what happens when we gratify the flesh look at what Paul says he gives a list of virtues and vices and Christianity is not the first to do this right even even sort of in Greco-Roman culture the Greek culture of Paul's day there were lists of of vices and virtues and virtues and vices, but not like this. Now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. All of those three words belong to the same category. Inordinate sexual desires. Sex is a gift from God. But in our brokenness, in our fallenness, in the fallenness of the world, we take good things from God and we make them ugly. We pervert them when we're not Being led by the Spirit. Next, he says, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, and jealousy. Fits of anger. Oh, how many people have been killed from a fit of anger? I've said this before, but I know in my heart when you hear about a murder suicide, and usually it's men, sometimes it's women, but it's usually men. Men, we struggle more with fits of anger than our wives do. Wives, women struggle with things, but, but we struggle with rage. I don't know if it's our testosterone. I don't know what it is. And you hear of a man who killed his wife and children and killed himself. And, and I know in my heart that what happens in those situations is a man loses his temper and does what is unthinkable, never planned to kill himself, but when he sees what he's done, And when he sees the harm it's called, that it's caused, he can't live with himself. We all think it's a grand plan. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to take my wife and children out at the same time. I don't think that's what happens. I think in a fit of anger, wipe out wife and kids. And then when they see what's happened, they can't live with themselves. And they kill themselves. And this is what Paul calls the works of the flesh, the works of our sinful nature fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies, drunken orgies, sort of drinking until the word here, orgies, doesn't relate to sexual immorality. It's actually like, like fits of drinking, binge drinking, because it comes right after that, you know, sitting around just drinking until you're, you know, sloshed and unconscious. He says, that behavior is the works of the fallen nature, and things like these, he says, now this is, not, this is not exhaustive, but he says, I warn you, that's a powerful word, I'm warning you, I'm warning you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not a, it's not a judgmental statement, that's how the world reads it, but it's Paul sort of pleading, saying, people whose lifestyle is characterized by these behaviors, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. This is not the behavior and pattern of behavior of kingdom people, people led by the Spirit. But in verse 22, he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, not fits of rage and anger, but self-control. Against such there is no law. It's a very clever use of the phrase, there is no law against these things. Again, Paul is always operating from the paradigm of how the law condemns us. There is a law against the works of the flesh. And that's what he's focusing on. This is sort of what's behind his words. The power of the law, it's what Galatians is all about. Us being free from the law. And Galatians and Romans are closely connected. They both deal with the law. He says, but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience many of you know it by heart now you've noticed the difference hopefully you notice the difference there are works of the flesh but there are not works of the spirit interesting there are works of the flesh but there are there's fruit of the spirit you see that you catch that It's a subtle nuance with lots of meaning. The Greek word ergon for work is that which displays itself in any kind of deed or action. So Paul naturally is thinking of the law. But fruit, karpos, is the product or outcome of something. In other words, the things that glorify God and the things that displease God are not manifested the same way through our, through our work. The things that please God, if you are walking in the Spirit, if you, if you are walking and being led by the Spirit, those good things, they just, they're the product. They just There's a natural sort of budding and blossoming of those things. That's, that's the point Paul is trying to make. If you live in the flesh and its desires, the law is against you. But when you live in the Spirit, you bear its fruits, and the law has nothing to say to you. That's why he said against those things, there is no law. The law has no power over you when you are being led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. The law has nothing to say. The law law can't condemn you. The law can't say anything against you. There's no law against goodness and peace and joy and gentleness and self-control against such there's no law he's thinking of the law's power to condemn from paul's perspective fleshly works correspond to the law so how can we be led by the spirit how can we bear its fruit how can we ensure the desires of the spirit predominate over the desires of the flesh in some ways, we need to unlearn the idea of what it means to please God, you know? I'm doing, I'm doing these evil things through my flesh. I'm working these evil works, but now I need to work these righteous works. And here, at least in Galatians, that's not how Paul's mind is working. If you're living in the Spirit, if you're being led by the Spirit, if you're walking in the Spirit, those, those good things will just naturally blossom and, and bud. So how can we bear those fruits? How can we blossom and bud? How can the How can we How can we ensure the spirit predominates over the flesh? Well, according to Galatians 5:24, we are to crucify the flesh with its evil passions and desires. This is why the name of my sermon this morning is The Cross and Holiness. The cross literally and as a metaphor for the Christian life, walking in the Spirit. We are to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires, and according to Galatians 5.25, we're to live by and keep in step with the Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit this is an astonishing metaphor maybe not for us today we've heard it before but in the first century this was an astonishing metaphor because crucifixion was a horrible brutal form of execution yet it illustrates graphically what our attitude toward our fallen nature should be i've touched on this a little bit in our series on holiness that we are to crucify kill mortify our sins, be ruthless with sin. And this is the language, this is the the kind of language Paul is embodying. We're not to coddle or cuddle our sinful nature. We're not to pamper it or spoil it. That's news for some of us. (laughs) Or give it any encouragement or even toleration. We're not to tolerate it. I think this is radical for us even today because we've sort of made peace with like, the really wicked influences in our lives. And I, I'm not talking about the things from outside. I'm talking about the things that we do, that we, that we know are probably not good for us, and we do it anyway. And Paul is saying, yeah, No. <laughs> no. We're not to coddle it. We are to fiercely and ruthlessly reject the flesh's desires. And this is why Jesus said, if anyone will be my disciple, he must do what? Deny himself and take up his cross. There is this image and metaphor of crucifixion. And follow me, he says. Paul is telling us that Christ's people nail the flesh to the cross every day. Every day we die. Every day we mortify. Every day we crucify. We're in this battle for our lives. You have to serve the Lord like your life depends on it because it does. Your eternal life depends on it. What things in your life do you need to crucify? Give us space for a moment. Let's think about that. What do you need to crucify? What needs to be nailed to the cross in your life? What fleshly desires that you currently gratify need to be destroyed and extinguished? Is it sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity? Strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. John Stott says if we're not ready to crucify ourselves in this decisive manner, we will soon find that we are crucifying the Son of God all over again. The essence of apostasy is changing sides from that of the crucified. To that of the crucifiers it's a reference to a passage in hebrews chapter 6 that when we willfully sin we crucify the lord of glory afresh romans 6 6 and i'm wrapping up here with just a couple of verses i want us to look at before we close We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then later on in Galatians, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul has expanded on the act of Jesus' crucifixion and created a world of symbolic and metaphorical theological meaning which shape our Christian lives. We have joined the crucified Lord. We have been definitively crucified to the world and to the flesh, but we make an active effort every day to crucify and mortify the flesh, not through works, but by surrendering to and being led by the Spirit. We've been crucified with Christ by faith, but we also take action to crucify our old nature. This is holiness. If you haven't heard anything I've said so far, hear this. This is the last thing I'm going to say. This is holiness led by and accomplished by the Spirit, not by our efforts, not by trying harder. We all know that doesn't work, right? We have to let the Spirit have its way, and when the Spirit has its way in us, when we yield to the Spirit, when we don't grieve the Holy Spirit it bears the fruit of holiness and righteousness. The freedom from condemning guilt is already a reality. The desire to please God, it's already there. All we need to do is keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for liberation from the guilt and condemnation of the law, that Christ, the faithful one who perfectly obeyed the law of God, his righteousness counts for us by faith. And we've been liberated and freed, but we've been freed to serve others, to gratify the spirit, to be motivated and to live by love for one another. Not to gratify our flesh, but rather to gratify the spirit. That not through our works, but through the spirit, we would bear the fruits of holiness and righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, peace, self-control. These are things which the law cannot condemn because they flow out of your own moral character, your heart, O God. Guide us and lead us now in this path through the power of your spirit, not in our own power and strength,